Podcast family, wait until you hear the true summary of a real patient presentation that I'm going to give you in just a moment. Of course, we're always going to respect HIPAA, and I'm not even going to tell you the name of the person who sent this to me, but all to say it is real and it is heartbreaking what happened to this clinical presentation of a 24-year-old, otherwise healthy, no past history young woman. I mean, I always think, what if this was my daughter? Think about this as your sister, uh, your cousin, other family member, close friend, whatever. It is amazing what happened to this individual. Now, we have blamed a lot of health conditions and weird presentations on things gynecology. Can we, can, can we, can we be clear here? We all get that, right? Uh, I mean, back in Hippocrates' days, we had the wandering womb theory. Yeah, that was all messed up, that the uterus somehow detached from its pelvic site and it would wander all throughout the body and make the patient, make the woman uh, kind of antsy or moody or temperamental when these patients probably had PMS. Uh, And then that bore the concept of hysteria. Yeah, hysteria is not a good term because it meant crazy from the uterus. uh, And one of the proposed terms was hysterectomy. So wild, where we get a lot of the old uh, concepts from gynecology. Now, to be fair, that's not the only discipline with some weird stuff in its history because psychiatry and neurology also has has some weird stuff in its back pocket that no one is proud of. So yes, we own that in women's health. Gynecology has had some weird stuff out there, even stuff related to sexual health. That goes without saying, okay? But in this case where we're saying, hey, potentially you can blame a patient's neuropsychiatric condition on her ovaries, and I don't mean bad PMS or PMDD. We're talking about a true autoimmune reaction where the patient makes autoantibodies against something in the ovary. That's a teratoma that has neuronal tissue that's expressing the NMA receptor. That can actually trigger what's called the brain-on-fire syndrome, autoimmune NMDA receptor R encephalitis. And its presentation is wicked scary, as my friends say, in the Northeast. Okay, I'm going to read you that real snapshot again. We're not going to violate any HIPAA, but this case snapshot will just break your heart. Now, the good news is that it was recognized. The patient had appropriate treatment, which we will get into, and she's doing much better. But... It does beg the scenario, make the case that prompt diagnosis and awareness of this is key. Because if you miss it, the more the patient goes not properly diagnosed, potentially the higher risk of long-term complication. And in, in its worst, it has been reported that this condition, because of autoimmune instability, can lead to respiratory uh, suppression, uh, uh, chronic ventilatory use, and or death. So can this condition kill someone? Absolutely. Is that likely? No, because now we're having a lot more recognition of this. But if you ask any gynecologist out in the community, been out of, practice, uh, out of school for a while, and say, hey, have you ever heard of an autoimmune condition where a teratoma can present with baby psychosis and or make them have respiratory collapse? They're like, there's no way. What does that have to do with anything? That's gynecology, not neurology. Uh, no. (laughs) Yes, those are different little boxes, but the boxes talk to each other. And in this very, very special scenario here, where it's a female patient 
reproductive age who has a teratoma and then keep going, has neural tissue and then keep going, is expressing the R-type receptor of NMDA in that neural tissue, keep going, who now gets tipped over the edge by typically some viral syndrome uh, and the body makes autoimmune uh, reaction to that, antibodies to that NMDA receptor, that can then present as acute onset of neuropsychiatric behavioral disturbances. And it's terrifying. So, yeah, we've blamed a lot of things on gynecology in the past, but this one is correct. This is real. Teratomas do have a crazy side in some cases. And I'm not using that word crazy in a demeaning way, and I'll explain that in a minute. But in this episode, I really do want to get into anti-N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor encephalitis otherwise known as NMDAR encephalitis, which is a true perineoplastic limbic syndrome caused by ovarian teratomas. And guys, that's where we live in women's health. So yes, we've got to be aware of this so we don't brush it aside because if you don't recognize it and you don't diagnose this patient with a teratoma correctly and remove it, then potentially long-term sequelae and and neuronal dysfunction will not get better and may not regress. So unbelievable what is out there. This syndrome has a range of of phenotypes, of penetrance. It can present with psychiatric conditions, weird, nondescript neurological uh, conditions like ataxia, uh, staring spells, seizure activity, and it can even have some autonomic dysregulation causing blood pressure instability where it spikes really high and then drops. And potentially, in those cases, can even lead to ventilatory dysfunction uh, leading to cardiac arrest. So this is something that is terrifying. Rare, yes, but it is out there in the community. Remember, well, I'm going to read you that real snapshot here in just a minute respecting HIPAA. And if you think, oh my goodness, this is super rare. Good one, Chapa. I mean, I'm probably never going to see that. No, no, no. Somebody in our podcast community did. There's even a movie about this. Uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. No, that patient was not in our podcast family community, but it does make the case that this is out there. And this was just covered in a 2022 uh, literature review where they reviewed all the case reports on this. Again, that was published just in 2022, uh, and that was by first author Lee L.I., and that was published in the World Journal of Clinical Cases. Of course, we'll post that link on our reference list. The title of this case review was, quote, Ovarian Teratoma-Related Anti-N-Methyl-D Aspartate Receptor Encephalitis, a Case Series and Review of the Literature, end quote, which is exactly what we're talking about here. So, super interesting topic, super interesting case. Uh, I want to say thank you to our podcast family member who sent this to me. Honestly, it's been some time since I got that message, and I completely forgot. I was so fascinated by that. I'm like, oh my goodness, my goodness, I'll put that on the list. And then, of course, it got derailed because of everything else that we're doing. But we're covering it now. So let's cover Teratoma's crazy side in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Susanna Cahalan. I'm 21 years old, and here I am with my dream job at the New York Post. Gross. Why are you smiling this early in the morning? It's unnatural and disgusting. You look ridiculous. Susanna! You're gonna interview that creepy senator. You'll have a Thursday night. I know I will, because I can always count on you. I have my whole life in front of me. was their remarkable trailer for the movie Brain on Fire, which came out on Netflix in 2018. And it's not fiction. It chronicles this true story that got national attention, as it should, um, from Susanna uh, Cahalan. Now, her condition was first thought to be purely psychiatric. I mean, she's bipolar. She's um, schizophrenic. She's uh, got severe uh, schizoaffective disorder. Uh, you heard some of that in the clip. And yes, she definitely had that symptomatology, but that was not the final diagnosis. Now, I have no financial ties to this movie or to that trailer, but it really does very, very well make the case here that in some cases, especially young re- reproductive age women with no past history who have acute onset of psychiatric uh, symptoms along with some neurological conditions and other symptoms that just don't match, right? I mean, bipolar patients don't typically have um, uh, ataxia. They don't typically have tremors. They don't usually have staring spells. Now, yes, you can have epilepsy and bipolar. You can have epilepsy and schizophrenia for sure. But but this case, this movie, and others in the literature, and I'm going to read you again, this case snapshot from, from our colleague uh, in our podcast family community who uh, this happened to him. So once again, the, the whole point of sharing that trailer is, one, it's a fantastic movie. 
And I always bring this back on a personal level. What if this was my daughter? Uh, what if this was my sister? What if this was uh, just any other family member? Or same for you. That that grief, you just see it in these family members that I, I know my daughter's not just acting this way. And I know it's just not a, a psychiatric condition. Something else is going on. And of course, it gets into this physician who says, I, I think this is the brain on fire syndrome. So brain on fire syndrome basically implies an autoimmune condition, uh, any form of, of autoimmune encephalitis, specifically uh, NMDA. And we're going to talk about that in this episode. But I just wanted to share that very impactful movie, not fiction, okay? I mean, this is this follows, a again, this true life story of Susanna, who was a writer for The Post, for heaven's sakes, for the New York post. And again, no financial disclosures here. I'm not plugging a movie for some financial gain, but I saw this movie when it first came out and it's just powerful. The point is we have to take the time as healthcare providers, not just in in women's health, but whether whether you're if you're internal medicine, if you're psychiatry for sure, to take time and really don't stop rushing to a diagnosis to check the box ask, look for other conditions and say, hmm, I wonder if this is related to something else, especially when things aren't making sense. All right. So this case is exactly this movie highlights exactly what we're talking about. Autoimmune encephalitis, specifically NMDA encephalitis. But more specifically from that in this episode, we're talking about it being related to teratomas. Right, so mature cystic teratomas, dermoids that have neural tissue that express MDNA receptors that can make the body uh, trigger this autoimmune response. Now we're going to get into pathophysiology in a minute, but it's not clear if it's just having the the neural tissue expressing those receptors in the ovary itself that leads to the condition. Uh, is it triggered by another infectious cause, like a viral condition, and then that sparks basically tips the patient over and the body over to make these antibodies? It's unclear, but what's not unclear is that this is real. Uh, it, now, thankfully, it's not very common. But it is out there. Again, it happened to one of our family members from the podcast, guys. And I'm going to read you that snapshot because it is just, wow, it's just eye-opening. Things that you take for granted. And remember not long ago, we did an episode on uh, migraine headache and endo, right? And I've got to be honest. When I first was approached by that possible connection, hey, endometriosis is triggering my migraines, my first reaction was, um, why? I mean, How? Now we know that there's absolutely a link between those conditions because of the pro-inflammatory state, and you can listen to that episode uh, at another time. But the idea is, guys, the body system doesn't live in little boxes, right? It's not gynecology in one box on one shelf and then neurology in another shelf. It's all integrated, hello, right? That the body is one organism. So that things that live in one department, like gynecology, don't necessarily stay there. And guys... Yes, in this case, in a very specific combination of the right patient, the right situation, the right age, that teratoma, that patient with a benign cystic dermoid that has NMDA receptor expression can actually present as neurological neurological manifestations and neuropsychiatric disturbances. So I want to be very clear because the title, which was Teratoma's Crazy Side, um, I'm not trying to um, pick at or demean 
patients with psychiatric conditions, okay, as we've all, as we've been very open in the past, my mother suffered for years with a a dual psychiatric diagnosis, and it, it rocked all of our worlds. And and so I'm very, very sensitive to that. I'm very aware of that. So I, please understand that the title of Teratoma's crazy side what is it mean to, in a demeaning way. It, it, it just was in a way to get somebody's attention so that we can all learn from this because, wow, this really is a, a real condition, just like the girl had in Girl on Fire. All right. All to say, what stays in the ovary doesn't necessarily, uh, what belongs in the ovary doesn't necessarily stay in the ovary. Now, this usually presents first with this neurobehavioral changes and you're like, oh my goodness, I think it's possibly autoimmune. You do a full workup, including a pelvic ultrasound. Typically, it's a pelvic CT. Uh, and you're like, oh my gosh, it looks like there may be a dermoid. So it's likely the neuropsychological and behavioral disturbances that lead to the gin diagnosis. Although it can be, I'm sure that, oh, you've got a patient that you're following with what looks like a benign dermoid and you don't want to do surgery right away, even though surgery is a formal diagnosis, but maybe seeing if it regresses, look for stability, it looks benign. So you're maybe putting in a short-term observation based on the ORADS scale, which we talked about in the past. See how it's all integrated, right? I mean, this is how if you get your report back and the dermoid is one of those things that ultrasonographically kind of looks like a dermoid. And you go, oh, that's ORADS uh, category looks benign, but it needs short-term follow-up, uh, suspect dermoid. Okay, I, I get that. Uh, and so you're putting her in observation and then they develop those uh, conditions. But the majority is that the, the teratoma, uh, which is has to be diagnosed and, and confirmed histologically by surgery. And, and that's one of the treatments, guys. If a patient has NMDA encephalitis, autoimmune encephalitis, based on antibody testing in the CSF, which we're going to talk about testing in a minute, you've got to take that ovary out. Because especially if it looks like a dermoid, that's greatly going to improve their condition. Now, it is possible, and and again, I'm jumping ahead because we are going to talk about diagnosis in a minute. It is possible to have um, NMDA encephalitis without detectable antibody in the CSF, but that's more unlikely. All right? So it's a combination of factors. Acute onset neuropsychiatric disturbance with weird neurological findings in a young reproductive age female because... This autoimmune condition, while it happens in males, absolutely is much more common in females. That's a, a key to look potentially for uh, a teratoma that could have a nervous tissue in it that's somehow tr- signaling the body to make this autoantibody. Is that wild or what? So just to be very clear, patient presents with weird neuropsychiatric behavioral issues, including catatonia. We're going to talk about all these symptoms coming up. Uh, and yeah, it's not infectious because that's the first thing to look out for. Make sure it's not a, a viral encephalitis, HSV encephalitis, something else. Get a head MRI, EEG, all of that because uh, they, they can even present with seizure activity. Uh, but once all that's negative, you got to look, tap the, the, the fluid in the CSF and look for these autoantibodies. And if it's positive... For an MDA, specifically the R receptor, so it's NMDA-R, which we'll, again, talk about in a minute, that's a, that's a plan. You're like, I've, we've got to check the abdomen and pelvis, make sure that that's not coming from the ovaries in a female patient. All right, guys, this is the opening intro, and I know that I've probably already blown some of y'all's mind because are you saying that the ovary made you crazy? Uh, yeah, kind of, especially if it's got neural tissue and it's a teratoma and the body made autoantibodies against it, that can attack the brain. 
insane. All right, let that process and let's simmer that and we'll come back in a minute. Yes, we're going to get into this in a lot of detail, but I think it makes it much more real when you can hear it from the patient herself. It all started with um, when I thought I had a case of bed bugs. And um, when I had an exterminator, he came in and said, you don't have bed bugs. Then after that, I was feeling very tired and lethargic. And really, I just didn't want to go to work. I felt not like myself. And then I started having numbness in my hands and my feet. And at that point, I went to a neurologist who first diagnosed me with with mono. Um, After that, I started acting paranoid. I had hallucinations and then I had a seizure. Because I literally don't remember the good part of the month that I was in the hospital, I had to rely on medical records, interviews with doctors, interviews with my family, interviews with my boyfriend. You know, pretty much I had to just recreate that time using the skills of the journalist. There's video that exists of me in the hospital, and when I watch it, it's very much, I'm watching this other Susanna, this other person that is so far divorced from who I am now. I mean, she's frightened, she's angry, she's just terrifying. And in a lot of ways, I've been trying to reconcile who that person was with who I am now and what kind of, what part of me is this kind of monstrous person. And through the course of researching this, I've come a little bit closer to understanding that other Susanna, but she's always, she's always a stranger. She's someone who I have to dig really deep outside of myself to really understand. I have to I have to ask other people. I have to read pages of medical records to get anywhere close to understanding. I think there's value in, in hearing a patient's story from the patient um, themselves. So it, it's one thing to read a case report, to watch a movie, but we got to remember that this is a this was a real young girl. And now when she really was afflicted by this, she was 24 in the movie. I think she plays like a 21 year old. It doesn't matter. I mean, a young reproductive age woman, otherwise healthy. Uh, and, and to put yourself in again in the family's perspective. So I want you to hear it from her words again, Susanna um, Kahalan, and just the the angst in her voice. Uh, it's just amazing. This poor woman very well would have been stuck in a psychiatric hospital uh, with uh, with a misdiagnosis. So it, it's remarkable, and I just wanted to highlight her and honor her uh, for having the courage to to share her story. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Remember that publication that we just talked about in 2022 that compiled the case reviews, the case summaries that have been published and did basically a systematic review of the subject. 
Well, here's what I find super interesting about that, okay? Between July of 2012 and December of 2019, so let's call it what it is, basically a seven-year span, at these authors' one institution, six patients with ovarian teratomas presented with anti-NMDAR encephalitis. Okay, that's at their hospital alone. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ah, six patients over seven years. Yeah, I mean, average one a year. Guys, I know it's not like, you know, 10 a day, uh, which would be unheard of. But one a year on average for this, it's rare, but apparently not that rare because at that one institution, uh, they had six patients over that seven-year interval. That's remarkable. So as the authors state in that publication, quote, These six patients presented with typical symptoms resulting in a diagnosis of ovarian teratoma-induced anti-NMDAR encephalitis. Appropriate interventions led to a positive outcome in all the patients, with five of the six patients reporting full recovery and the sixth patient recovering with a few deficits. No deaths were recorded. End quote. Remember, that was uh, in 2022 in the journal, in the World Journal of Clinical uh, Cases. And as I mentioned before, that first author was Lee, L-I. All to say, yes, it, it's, it's rare, but apparently not that rare. And you just have to keep your eyes open for this. And remember, it's typically that they present first with these behavioral slash uh, psychiatric conditions, and then there's a diagnosis. But the reverse could also happen. I mean, if you find a teratoma, remember that the formal diagnosis is still that's an ovarian abnormality. It still requires definitive surgical removal for for proof. Um, But it's okay to follow it short term. If it looks benign, looks just like a dermoid, you can follow it for a while. And at some point, you got to say, look, we we just need to get this thing out. Um, uh, but it's it's possible for those patients who have a teratoma who to then get the syndrome, and, and we all have to be aware of that. Typically, this is found the teratoma is found as an incidental finding, which in this case is not incidental at all because it's it's the cause of the neurological condition. So it can present first with psychiatric issues, then getting to the ovary diagnosis, just like it was in this review, or vice versa. Well, I had to leave our regular recording area because I had to come back to the office. But we're in a lull. And in this lull, I want to share with you this uh, Facebook message that I received from one of our podcast family members about this case. Now, remember, we're going to respect HIPAA. I'm not even going to tell you who this comes from because it's 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 not pertinent to the story. But when you when I read you this case snapshot, I'm telling you, I mean, I when I first read this, when I first got it. Uh, and read it again when I got the reminder from this podcast family member about, hey, what happened to my episode? <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, look at this case. It's just heartbreaking. And it really does make you think how many patients are misdiagnosed with some neurobehavioral slash psychiatric condition and really have something else. Now, I, I don't want to give any misperceptions uh, here or guide anybody incorrectly. And I'm not saying, as I've already alluded to, that you know, vast majority of patients with some neurobehavioral disturbance have a gynecological source, not at all. But the point is that we should not just jump to that. We've got to exclude other things, especially when the case doesn't make much sense, okay? So listen to this case snapshot, and then we are going to go through with workup. We're going to go through presentation, and we're going to review uh, and remind ourselves what the NMDA receptor actually does in the brain, uh, and then, of course, treatment for this and prognosis, okay? But listen to this case, this real case snapshot. And remember, put yourself into the patient and the family's position. What if this was your daughter? Here we go. 
quote, a 24-year-old healthy Hispanic female with three weeks history of intermittent mental status changes then became frankly acutely psychotic, developed fever, tachycardia, and also loss of bladder function. Workup of infectious causes were all negative. There was no past medical history. The only finding was on the CT scan and ultrasound showing a one centimeter teratoma, end quote. Now, let's stop there for a minute. So appropriate workup, uh, like nothing else is there, no past history. And notice the constellation of symptoms here, right? It's not just a psychotic episode. It's psychosis with fever, tachycardia, loss of bladder function. Guys, acute psychosis from a neurodevelopmental slash neurobehavioral aspect uh, doesn't come with tachycardia. So that's why you got to think about other things. And they correctly, the first thing is, look, make sure it's not infectious encephalitis. And in this case, it was not. And then the second thing to take home from this real presentation is, look at the size of that ovarian dermoid, one centimeter. So don't think that this is a, you know, six centimeter big mass, you know, or somehow this is a malignancy, even though it's called perineoplastic. Remember that some neoplasms, of course, are benign. And we're talking about a, a mature teratoma here. This is a benign ovarian cyst. And it doesn't have to be large for this uh, to happen. This was one centimeter. This uh, podcast family member goes on to say, quote, the decision was made to perform oophorectomy on hospital day number four, an anti-NMDA antibody was positive on CSF studies two weeks later, end quote. Again, all of this was done correctly. I think hospital day four to get the appropriate diagnosis and proceed to oophorectomy is timely. I mean, some patients go for weeks without making this connection. This is why we're doing this episode. Yes, it is relatively rare, but it is still out there. So in patients with neuropsychiatric conditions and presentations that comes with abnormal neurological friends, think about this, especially in a young reproductive age female with no past history. And this podcast family member goes on to say, quote, patient now making significant improvement uh, and had never seen this before, thought the uh, podcast might be helpful, end quote. So yes, it's absolutely the right thing to do. This patient was taken care of correctly. And just to be fair, this wasn't received recently. This has been some time ago and I totally forgot to do the episode. Um, So I I trust the patient is doing well. But it is now key, what we now know over the, the, the burden of data and literature that quick recognition of this prevents long-term neurological morbidity. So good job to this podcast family member for working with a multidisciplinary team to make the correct diagnosis of anti-NMDAR encephalitis. You see, this is just like that story from The Brain on Fire. Because what happened to Susan and in her case or her story, I mean, she would have been misdiagnosed and put into a psychiatric inpatient facility for years and kept on antipsychotic medications and or had some autonomic dysfunction and collapse. And that's the end of the story. But thankfully, there was a physician who made that connection to look for other things. So vital, vital that organic causes, of course, are excluded. And while looking at imaging in the brain is absolutely the right thing to do, remember that things outside of the CNS system can greatly impact the CNS system, even gynecological structures. Okay, before I get called away, because I'm sure that there's a patient who is just about to get here, I'm sure. Uh, Let's see how far we can get. But it's a good place for us to kind of stop here for a moment and, and just review 
what this condition even is, all right? Because we've talked about it as its formal name, which is anti-N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor encephalitis, which no one is ever going to say. People are just going to say NMDA encephalitis, specifically with the R receptor. But it's a good time for us to just kind of stop here for a minute and and just kind of review what this condition actually is, all right? This is a form of autoimmune encephalitis that, again, is relatively rare, uh, but it becomes less rare if you actually look for it and make the correct diagnosis. And it has been very well published as a known complication of neural tissue containing ovarian teratomas, right? mature cystic teratomas, dermoids. There are two main kinds of encephalitis. The first is infective or infectious. That's caused by some organism, typically viruses. And then the other is autoimmunity or autoimmune-driven encephalitis. Now, that's the focus on, on this episode. That's what we're concentrating on. Autoimmune encephalitis, or AE, also has two major subtypes. The first is the classic perineoplastic limbic encephalitis that's characterized by onconeural antibodies against intracellular neuronal antigens. Now, I'm going to be very clear. I did not memorize that. I had to write that down because you're like, what? Coming from a non-neurologist, um, <laughs> my thing was, what does that mean? It's very easy. There's kinds of antibodies that can attack neuronal components that are intracellular. That's not what we're talking about here. Then there's the other kind of autoimmune encephalitis that is characterized by neuronal surface or synaptic antigens. And that's what we're talking about here. The NMDAR encephalitis is this kind of autoimmune encephalitis where antibodies attack the glutamate receptors at central neuronal synapses. And this leads to a variety of constellation based on what area of the brain is affected. It can affect memory. It can affect affect, it can affect uh, um, mood, and these weird psychiatric and behavioral symptoms are also a part of that. And depending on what part of the brain is hit, NMDAR encephalitis can also lead to abnormal movements like dyskinesias. It can lead to seizure activity, and in the worst case, it can lead to autonomic instability with severe fluxes in blood pressure uh, and also can lead to hypoventilation. Anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis was first described in 1997 by two separate case reports, each of a different patient, right? So just to be clear, there was one report in 1997 that said, oh, I think I've stumbled onto something. And then a separate case report in the same year that said, oh, I think I've stumbled onto something. And they were talking about the same condition. But oddly, look at this. I mean, how things work out, right? Same year, two different journals, two different people, two different patients. These two authors, uh, oh, let me stop there for a minute. This is why it's important, guys, to put things in print. If you see something super funky, put it out there because it may help somebody else in down the road go, oh my goodness, I read about this. Very similar to this case. Um, and you can look that up, just Google, you know, CHOPA, uh, non-sexual pelvic inflammatory disease, which resulted in catatonic conversion reaction. Super weird. We, we published that. You can look at it. It's free press online where this patient who was virginal, I think she was like in her 40s, uh, came in with classic PID symptoms, uh, virginal. Um, so she had never had any course. So the question is, well, how did she get PID? Well, she was an avid doucher after her menses. And so as far as we can figure, and, and based on the physical exam, uh, I mean, I know there's no exam for 
for being a virgin. But, I mean, she sure did look virginal. I mean, very tight, hymenal ring, uh, very hard to do a, a vaginal inspection. And she said, look, I just don't do that. I've never had vaginal penetration. Uh, but she did douche. So the thought is during her menstruation, she douched and she put some of that bacteria up into her tubes. By the way, we gave her antibiotics. She didn't get better. We did laparoscopy. We confirmed that the ultrasound was correct, that we had bilateral hydrosalpinges with TOAs. We drained it. We got uh, typical vaginal flora like E. coli, peptostreptococcus. So it was proven by laparoscopy, PID with hydrosalpinx and TOAs. When we gave her the diagnosis that she had a PID and she was educated, she knew what PID was, that somehow, you know, quote, loose women, end quote, was what she said, got that, not women like her, uh, who were devout and non-sexual, didn't, uh, I mean, she had attraction to men, she just was virginal, uh, that she shouldn't get that. So she became straight up catatonic. I mean, straight up catatonic. So I got a call. I was on call and they said, hey, your patient is staring at the wall. Come check her out. Then she had a stroke. And I was like, oh, my God, I got in there. And of course, I thought maybe she had some septic, you know, embolic phenomenon that she had a stroke uh, and she was straight up catatonic. All the workup was negative. EEG was negative. I mean, perfectly catatonic. And the full workup was negative. And so the the behavioral health specialist said, look, this is somehow how she processed it. She couldn't get through the diagnosis that she had a sexual diagnosis when she was not sexual. And she may have checked out. She's just catatonic. And we transfer her to a, a different level of care because of that. And it's always been my fear that did that patient have an autoimmune reaction to this kind of encephalitis? And I begged for further evaluation from this. Uh, and of course, the consultant was like, look, it's super rare. I don't have any evidence that it is autoimmune, plus that's usually viral. Um, and yeah, I don't find any evidence of neuronal tissue from somewhere else that could be potentially doing this. This was classic TOA. And so they, they pretty much shot me down that it was some kind of NDA encephalitis. And I get that. The picture didn't classically look like that. But I was always left with this uh, this kind of nagging question is, did, I, did we send this poor catatonic patient out when she likely had an autoimmune encephalitic flare? Now, she did have a CSF and it was negative. It was negative for organisms and there was no antibodies. But what we now know is that it is possible to get this and, and not be detected, not have detectable CSF antibodies initially and that later pick up later on. So I, I did, when we transfer her out, I was very adamant and I told the accepting physician, please repeat the tap to make sure that anti-NMDA uh, antibodies are not present because if it is, this thing can be reversed quickly with appropriate treatment, which is plasmapheresis, IV steroids, uh, and and potentially some other medications we'll get into in a minute. But, uh, and they promised me, no question, we get that, we understand, and we will repeat that, uh, you know, one or two days after she first gets here and we do our eval. So that's that. I don't have any follow-up for that. But you see how these weird things are out there? And that, all to say, the purpose of me reminding, uh, reviewing this case that we published was, these weird things are out there like they were in 1997 when these two separate authors found patients with ovarian teratomas who ended up having these psychiatric manifestations and altered levels of consciousness and both of them got better after tumor removal. Do you see that, guys? Now, in our case, we didn't have what looked like dermoids. I mean, they were classic TOAs. They had tubal ovarian abscess. We drained pus from them laparoscopy, uh, laparoscopically. So, Similar yet different, 
but it makes the case always look for something else. So just because it's in the pelvis, it does not mean it can't affect the CNS system. All right, so anyway, back to these two case reports. One report back in 1997 was by Nakura et al., who published in Acta Neurology from Scandinavia. And in this case report, this was a 19-year-old patient who developed memory loss and then became psychotic. She went into a coma with convulsions and required mechanical ventilation because of hypoventilation. So this makes the point, guys, that this isn't just like them acting out or acting weird because of this condition. This is real neurological problems. Um, And that's why we're doing this episode, just to call attention to it. MRI of the brain showed minimal changes. She had a spec scan that revealed a small region of increased uptake in the cortex, but it was otherwise nonspecific. Now, remember, 1997, right? So this is one of the first things uh, out that came into print about this. And so they're like, I don't know, we're going to give her IVA cyclovir. Maybe it's herpes encephalitis. They gave her high-dose steroids. Uh, but that really didn't help any. Short of it is, when they were looking for other random things, they found the ovarian tumor. And following resection of that dermoid, the patient had significant recovery of her cognitive function and her psychosis went away. And so that just went to prove here that this was a perineal plastic process uh, related to the dermoid. Now, remember, this, this, they had no idea what else was going on. They're like, hey, I think there's some kind of, of specific antibody response here that became encephalitis. But anyway, we're just putting that out there in print. In that same year, the second case report was published, and this one was in The Lancet. Again, a confused young girl. She was 15. And in this report, the authors stated, quote, To the best of our knowledge, this is the first report of a perineoplastic syndrome that has the clinical features of organic mental disorders, end quote. Well, yeah, it's, you know, who found it first or who wrote it up first is questionable and debatable. I mean, even though we can look at months of publication, uh, all to say is there had already been uh, something else in development here with a Nakura paper, but you had these two independent case reports in two different patients, two different authors, two different journals that were talking the same language. From that, there was a little gap in time, and then in 2007, there was researchers and physicians who actually now found that this was in fact related to the NMDA receptor. That was by Daomu and colleagues, all right? So Daomu and colleagues have pretty much uh, take the credit, uh, as they should correctly, for finding that this is actually a specific receptor from NMDA called the R-receptor, and they published their findings in 2007 in the journal Neurologia. Now, I know we've already touched on this a little bit, but it's worth mentioning again that the NMDA receptor is a, a true receptor for a glutamate, okay? And remember that, if you remember from neurology, that's the primary excitatory neurotransmitter. And when those receptors go haywire, then you get this, this very random array of clinical features that is both um, neuropsychiatric and behavioral. Right? So you get that altered movement, you can get potential for seizures, as we've already discussed, uh, and this weird delusional slash schizophrenic, even psychotic kind of picture. Uh, and that's why there's drugs that target MDA, right? There's MDA receptor medications, and ketamine is one of those. And that's why it's also a, a drug of abuse. Anytime that you get a little psychotic kind of symptom, I mean, base, 
basically hallucination and euphoria, it's going to lead the potential to abuse. So that's where the whole ketamine misuse comes into play. But NMDA receptors really are responsible for, for a variety of functions in CNS, from memory response uh, to learning to, uh, again, uh, motor function. So it's super broad in what they do. And when a specific receptor is attacked and, and affected, you can see why there's so many altered neurobehavioral uh, and neuroaffective disorders that result from that. All right, we are back in studio. I really do hate when I do stuff in the office because... I, there's always people around that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm taping over here and uh, they're just doing their regular office stuff. But by me doing that or at the hospital or in some random hallway when I'm in between patients, it just saves me time so I don't lose my mojo, especially when I got something in my head. I got to get it out. And as I've said before, yes, I've got a little microphone case. It's super handy. It always rides in my car. So if there's a lull, I'm like, hey, where's our next patient? Oh, Uh, She no-showed. Boom, I'm running to my car. (laughs) I run to my car and I record stuff. But I'm very thankful we're back in the studio now. And we're going to start wrapping this up because now that we've laid all that foundation on the brain on fire syndrome, uh, otherwise known as NMDA autoantibody encephalitis, and specifically as it relates to neural tissue autoantibodies from dermoids, this is the R receptor. So uh, NMDA-R, autoantibody, autoimmune encephalitis. I want to talk about uh, a little bit about workup, of course, management and prognosis as we start to wrap this up. So for basic workup, of course, with any patient that presents with acute neurological findings, that initial investigation has to be done for encephalitis and or brain lesion like it would for anybody else. And that includes serum and CSF studies. All right. Now, the definitive diagnosis can be made with finding anti-NMDAR antibodies in blood or serum. With, of course, the mainstay being finding these antibodies in the CSF. Now, this is followed by finding a source of this autoimmune flare. So you got to look where this neural tissue may be. And in a young reproductive age woman, you've got to look at the ovaries to see if there's something suspicious for a teratoma. Once again, I am not saying that all psychiatric patients need to be checked for dermoids. Please, that's not what I'm saying at all. But again, in patients that have acute findings, no past history, weird stuff is going on, especially if they give this history of, of, hey, I had this weird viral syndrome before a couple of weeks ago, and now you're getting this. That is infectious. Uh, autoimmune encephalitis to prove and otherwise do that workup and then know that that viral prodromal-like syndrome could very well uh, lead to the body manufacturing these anti-NMDA receptors, antibodies, uh, if the patient has a dermoid with neural tissue. So I, I don't want to get any messages that I can't believe you're saying that every acutely psychotic patient needs a pelvic ultrasound. Not what I'm saying at all. I mean, it, and if that's a take-home message, you've missed this whole thing because psychosis is out there and bipolar is out there. Trust me, I know. Uh, this neuropsychological conditions present in isolation, but when stuff doesn't make sense, when there's other constellations of symptoms and you ask the patient, ask the family, what's going on? Like, I don't know, there's weird things. There's these staring spells. I thought maybe she had a seizure uh, and there's this, uh, you know, confusion uh, and there's no brain mass or brain mets consider the cause as encephalitis. And once you've ruled out infectious etiology, 
look for autoimmune uh, uh, varieties, all right? And remember, this can be super broad from catatonia to status epilepticus, uh, coma, and in very rare but severe cases, it, it can cause death. The mainstay of treatment if you find a, a dermoid mass on imaging or something that looks like a dermoid mass, is you got to take that out. Uh, you got to do that to remove that tissue burden and then begin immunotherapy. So based on all of the publications that we've read, including that 2022 systematic review, it looks like quick access to IVIG corticosteroids and tumor removal if there in fact is a teratoma, which is a focus of this episode that is the, the trifecta, all right? Quickly removing the mass, uh, doing IVIG, uh, and then giving corticosteroids. Some call for plasmapheresis uh, as another first-line therapy, uh, and absolutely. And if your center doesn't do that to remove the autoantibody load or burden, you got to send her to some place that has plasmapheresis capability. Uh, others have put out some potential other medications out there, including uh, anti-epileptic medications if necessary. But the, it, the, the mainstays, that trifecta of steroids, IVIG, and mass removal with or without uh, anti-seizure medications if necessary. And again, plasmapheresis can follow if, if lack of response to those, main, uh, those first three things, uh, if lack of response is found. All right? but, but the idea is, remember our title, teratoma's crazy side is that if you find that ovarian mass, even like in the case that we presented, uh, which was one centimeter, uh, that's got to come out. Once the mass is removed, resolution of symptoms should follow along with using those other uh, medication approaches like corticosteroids and IVIG and plasma freezes if needed. And it can happen quickly or it can take a slow process over the ensuing weeks. Now, the majority of patients in the literature, remember, these are mainly uh, case reports, have made a full recovery, but it can take up to two years. And according to some, there are some predictors of positive outcome, and that includes a, a visible tumor that you can excise. Quickly taking that tumor out is, is the idea. So quick recognition, which is why we're doing this episode again, to, to recognize that this is actually a condition, uh, and quick removal and quick diagnosis is the way to get on top of this thing. The longer that the patient stays, the more CNS neuronal injury that happens, the worse a long-term prognosis, all right? So to be clear, there are some that do not recover, but the majority can get better, some quickly, and some can last up to two years. So this is nothing that's going to happen overnight. But once again, just keep your eyes open. And in patients who have weird stuff happening with a known dermoid for sure, consider this as a diagnosis. And if they don't have a known uh, dermoid uh, in, in the abdomen, in the pelvis, then consider searching for one. Again, not all psychotic patients, not all patients that are bipolar, uh, but something to consider when patients have acute onset, no past history, along with vague and, and bizarre, atypical other neurological complications. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. To our podcast family member who sent this to me some time ago, I am so sorry that I totally, totally dropped the ball on this. I was so fascinated by this. And again, with our patient that we published in that case report, I'll put that link to our uh, our published case report in our reference page as well. Um, I just I forgot about it with all the other stuff going on. But it, it is valid. It is so necessary to bring this awareness 
to to anyone who does women's health care to know that this is out there. I mean, my goodness, the brain on fire syndrome, otherwise known as NMDA, are uh, autoimmune, autoantibody induced encephalitis from a dermoid. So it does belong in gynecology's home. So anyway, fascinating. I hope you found this helpful. And as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.